love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey freaks, welcome to a very special social distancing episode of the Box of Oddities. Now, I've heard that some people are trying to use the term physical distancing rather than social distancing because it's easier on their brains. Okay, all right. And and I guess social distancing um, insinuates or implies, if you will, not communicating or corresponding with anybody. Right. That would be more like social media distancing, which I'm all for, by the way. (laughs) Yes, you're, you're very, very yeah. bad at social media I, the social meds and i we uh well we talk but but not often it's true yeah yeah you've had a falling out i've, I've distanced myself from social media <laughs> we hope you guys are doing well this is the what our the fourth day of our self-imposed isolation yep yeah. yep it's I, going really well i think i did um venture out yesterday to buy new dart tips yeah <laughs> Important stuff only. (laughs) We've been occupying ourselves playing a lot of darts, and uh, we broke all the dart tips. This is accurate. Yeah, so I had to uh, venture out and brave the zombie apocalypse and go to Dick's Sporting Goods and and buy dart tips. But the good news is that uh, there was nobody else in the mall. That's right. (laughs) It was eerie. It was so weird. And not just the mall, but driving anywhere. Mm. Uh, Driving down the center strip where all the businesses are in in our hometown of Bangor, Maine, um, I think I saw five cars on the road in the middle of the day. Yeah. I have not left the house, so I don't know of these things that you speak of, (laughs) the cars and other people. Yeah. uh, Well, we hope you're doing well. And uh, we're fine. We're looking forward to uh, getting back out on the road when this whole thing calms down and doing some more shows. We miss you guys. In the meantime, we thought we would uh, throw this bonus episode out there and, you know, because it gives us something to do besides play darts. Yeah, we're here. So yeah, we might as well. Um, and, and maybe, you know, it'll distract you guys, too. So you go first. Okay. 
Since we have been talking so much about this whole weird situation, I thought that we should talk about some of the magical things that can happen during these sorts of times. I think this is great. Um, my topic, I specifically chose something that was a little bit more lighthearted and fun. Oh, good. So this will work well. Go ahead. Okay. Well, this is not not lighthearted. No, I, I'm, I'm saying that, that both of them are going to be perhaps, well, neither of them are going to be dark. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. Here we go. The Great Plague. <laughs> well, well this, is, this is off to a bad start. <laughs> so <laughs> it's 1665 and Sir Isaac Newton, uh, at the time, not a sir, just an Isaac Newton. Uh, he was a student and he went through his own period of what you might call social distancing. So it was uh, London during the time of the Great Plague, and Cambridge sent their students home to continue their their learning, uh, not at campus because, uh, well, plague. (laughs) And so for Newton, that meant going home to Woolsthorpe Manor, the family estate, which is about 60 miles northwest of Cambridge. So he worked on some mathematic problems that he'd begun at Cambridge. Uh, The papers that he wrote on this actually ended up becoming early calculus. Let me ask you this. Do you think you could you could uh, kick Isaac Newton's ass in darts? No, because he's got the whole laws of physics thing uh, figured out. No, I'm just not very good at darts. (laughs) I think. I don't know about that. Uh, (laughs) Next, he uh, worked with prisms. He got a few prisms and experimented with them in his bedroom, which is a whole different thing than what most people experiment with in their bedrooms. (laughs) He went so far as to uh, make a very small hole in his shutters so just a small beam of light could come through the shutters. And that sprung his theories on optics. Also, while there, he had a breakthrough regarding the nature of motion and gravity. Hmm. So, you know the story about the apple tree, and he got conked on the head. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not exactly how it happened, but um, his assistant, John Conduit, which is an amazing name for a scientist's assistant. um, Sounds like a porn name. (laughs) John Con- So John Conduit wrote, while he was musing in a garden, it came into his thought that the same power of gravity, which made an apple fall from the tree to the ground, was not limited to a certain distance from Earth, but must extend much further than was usually thought. Why not as high as the moon, he said to himself. So this is according to uh, Washington Post. Uh, Newton returned to Cambridge in 1667 with his theories in hand, including the, the, the law, what became the laws of gravity. So he, during his quarantine or self-imposed isolation, came up with the laws of physics. Some of the most important theories that we still, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think the biggest thing I've accomplished today is I managed to make a grilled cheese sandwich without burning both sides. Well done. Thank you. That's not easy. Within six months of returning to school, by the way, he was made a fellow and two years later a professor. So he did okay. So some good came out of it. Absolutely. Um, So in and around... 1606, there was also some plaguiness happening, Hmm. Um, as there often 
uh, is in in world history. And uh, Shakespeare likely wrote King Lear along with Macbeth, uh, Antony and Cleopatra. And these all came out in quick succession. It's said that this was a time of plague. And though it's been proposed that Shakespeare wrote these under quarantine, uh, there's no evidence to say that he produced more during times of plague uh, than he did otherwise. Uh, However, he did produce amazing works during these stressful times. So maybe he wasn't quarantined. He was quite quite prolific. Exactly. So the chances of him writing during the quarantine were pretty good. It's kind of like Stephen King. He writes all the time, like constantly, 24 hours a day. Well, he most definitely did write these during times of extraordinary... Isolation. Petulance. Petulance. Um, but that wasn't necessarily the inspiration for. That's right. Okay. So we're seeing a lot of uh, things tootle around the internet right now that Macbeth and King Lear specifically were written during a quarantine. Hmm. And I have wasn't able to find anything that proves that. Hmm. However, he did write so much uh, that he most definitely did produce incredible works during times of the plague. It just... Uh, you know, not not specific. So, I mean, I'm just here for the truth, guys. And we're, we're both for the truth. We just often mispronounce it. <laughs> it would be better if we didn't. We could try not <laughs> yeah. doing that. Yeah. But uh, OK, we do the best we can. <laughs> the 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora was the most powerful in human recorded history with the volcanic explosivity index of seven. And that is the most recently known V. EI7 event and the only unambiguously confirmed VEI7 eruption since the Lake Taupo eruption in 180. 100 AD or 180? 180. Wow. Yeah, so it was a it was a big eruption. It's a big deal. Is what I'm is what I'm getting at. Okay. According to Wikipedia, the ash from the <laughs> eruption column dispersed around the world and lowered global temperatures in, in an event sometimes called the year without summer. It was 1816. And this period of significant climate change triggered extreme weather and harvest failures in many areas around the world. Some of the changes that were observed were greater than during any other period that we have in recorded history. And it's suspected that the changes spurred from this event were the largest since the early Stone Age. There was snow in New England in July. Uh, Dark rain clouds swept over Europe throughout the summer months. In Hungary, there were reports of brown snowfall. Uh, The snow had been tainted by volcanic ash from this incredible volcanic eruption, you know, thousands of miles away. It's nuts. So agricultural failure was, as you can imagine, rampant during that time. And the price of food was going nuts. Uh, It also increased the price of oats for horses. And horses at that time were the main transportation source. And this is according to the National Center for Atmospheric Research. So Baron Carl von Drays needed a means of tootling about that did not rely on horses. Horses and draft animals of all types, of course, having been, 
you know, so affected by this as well. And this has been credited with helping inspire the invention of the bicycle by Carl Drays in 1817. So so this volcanic eruption had a direct influence on the development of the bicycle. Yeah. He discovered that by placing wheels in a line on a frame, he could balance by way of dynamic steering. And then he fashioned a narrow vehicle capable of maneuvering on his lands so he could, you know, make his way from uh, place to place. And he called it the Luffs machine, which means like walking machine. Um, It looked a lot different than a bike, but it essentially eventually became a bike. Yeah, I think I've seen like engravings of of that it it kind of looked like a bicycle but there were no pedals and he would just kind of scoot his feet along yeah 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 it's kind of like a sit-down skateboard kind of like that yes there was actually a big problem with this because it some places outlawed it because the roads weren't great because Mm. of like the horse carriage ruts and stuff um so he they would try to ride on the sidewalks but people didn't know to get the heck out of the way. <laughs> so um, they it, it was a whole thing about how, like, trying to get a way for them to maneuver on these roads. And, it, yeah, anyway. Yeah, there were no bike lanes. During the, the time after this enormous volcanic eruption, April 1816 to be exact, Mary Shelley traveled to Geneva. She was accompanied by her half-sister, Claire Claremont, amazing name by the way, and Percy Shelley. So this is according to the Paris Review. Geneva had been struck by flooding and famine, and there had been um, soup kitchens that were open for the poor. Uh, There was terrible weather during that time. Uh, Mary actually observed the weather and uh, had written that the thunderstorms that visit us are grander and more terrific than I've ever seen before. And this was all due also to the volcanic eruption. Exactly. All right. They wanted to often at night go rowing on Lake Geneva and it was impossible because of the strong gales and Mm. heavy rains and it was kind of a bummer, actually, as I feel like most of that year uh, was. Was there smoke on the water by the Lake Geneva shoreline? Um, th- there may have been. Okay. Some... Did they all go down to Montrose is what I'm asking. Oh, no. Okay. No, they didn't they didn't have a bike or horses. Okay. I see. Um, so <laughs> at this time, Mary was hanging out with some pretty big names, including Lord Byron and John Polidori who is often credited with creating the vampire fiction genre. Wow. So while staying near Lake Geneva in Switzerland, Mary, Percy, Lord Byron, and Polidari uh, found themselves cooped up inside most of the time because they couldn't do their fun boating things and everything sucked and it was rainy and gross. And so Lord (laughs) Byron suggested that they have a friendly competition to see who could write the best horror story. 18-year-old Mary took a few days and, uh, boom, knocked out Frankenstein. No kidding. Wow. Which is considered to be the first science fiction novel. And again, we have the novel Frankenstein because of this volcanic eruption that caused Mary Shelley to... That's ma- that is amazing. Uh-huh. Now... Lord Byron's great. Uh, He wrote some pretty incredible stuff during this time as well. Uh, Lots of it very dark and dismal, uh, mirroring the weather, if you will. Uh, But I'm pretty sure Mary 
Mary won that contest. Um, um, yeah, my money is on is on Mary Shelley. Lord Byron, uh, from what I understand, was uh, getting it on with uh, Mary Shelley's uh, sister or cousin. Or Claire whatever. Claremont? Cla- Claire Claremont, yeah. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, he was sleeping in her room at night. Well, I mean, they were all cooped up here. They couldn't sure, go boating. Yeah, right. I know. You can't go boating. You might as well. Might as well. Yeah. You were saying, actually, that you expected there be, to be a baby boom in the next nine months, and that's probably yeah. exactly what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. It's going to be the boomers, too. In December of this year, mark my words, there will be a ton of babies named Corona. <laughs> that's terrible. Anyway, amazing things can happen during times of what is otherwise maybe a, a difficult situation some some words of hope from cat walls that's no, i like a songbird <laughs> and now that thing in the middle in an attempt to make this episode as cozy as possible fluffy yeah our uh thing in the middle is a list of some very weird but interesting facts about cat number five the average cat can jump eight feet in a single bound that's nearly six times its body length Wow. So if we could jump like cats, we could jump about 36 feet. That's incredible. Assuming we were six feet tall. We are not six feet tall. Yeah, neither one of us are. That's true. (laughs) Number four. A cat has the power to sometimes heal themselves by purring. Yes, a domestic cat's purr has a frequency of between 25 and 150 hertz, which happens to be in the frequency at which muscles and bones best grow and repair themselves. Number three, a group of cats is called a clouder. No, they're not. They're called a group of cats. Number two, cats use their meows to talk to humans, not to each other. The only time they meow to communicate with each other is when they are kittens to signal to their mom that they are hungry. Oh, wow. And number one, cats are usually lefties. Studies indicate that their left paw is typically their dominant paw. I myself am a lefty. Thank you very much. You're a cat who is a lefty. The Box of Oddities with Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Emily sent this email. Hi, Cat and Jethro. I love the podcast and eagerly await each episode. While listening to episode 194, you solved a mystery for me. Oh. My boyfriend was born and raised in Redwood Valley, California, the home of the original Jim Jones Church. Well, actually, my boyfriend's childhood home is right next door to this church and the previous Jim Jones residence. Oh, wow. When he first pointed it out to me, you could clearly see a huge cage in the yard. When I asked my boyfriend what it was, he said it was a monkey cage. I never really put two and two together. It just seemed strange. After hearing this episode, I had him take pictures the next time he was there. Unfortunately, they have put sheeting on the outside of the cage now to create a shed. But I still attach the pictures of the structure in the new church that is the old Jim Jones Church. By the way, my boyfriend's last name is Jones. He promises he's no relation. So, (laughs) yeah, we did the episode about uh, Jim Jones. Who would have thought the career of a door-to-door monkey salesman would go off the rails quite like that? Yeah, it's not great. 
Now, when I was a small person, we had a chicken shed that uh, was at the bottom of our driveway where the chickens lived. Mm -hmm. And then we didn't have chickens anymore, but a man moved in. (laughs) That was weird. There was a man living in your chicken shed? Yeah, that's for another time. Okay. Save that story. Bookmark that one. (laughs) I can't wait to hear the deets. All right. Here's one you might like. Yes, please. Lord Timothy Dexter. He wasn't actually a lord. He was a leather craftsman who was born near Boston in the mid-1700s. He bestowed the title upon himself. Awesome. I like him already. Yep. Um, He married a wealthy widow and moved to the well-to-do Boston neighborhood of uh, Charlestown. Now, throughout his life, he made some very weird, strange, idiotic, people would say, decisions to make a name for himself and to increase his wealth. And... And even though some of the decisions he made were ridiculous, they were foolhardy, but they always seemed to work out for him. (laughs) In in the late 1700s, the continental dollar was America's first form of paper money, and people didn't trust it. It failed to gain any trust in the public. So many of the wealthier people tried to do a, quote, good deed by buying some of the public bills, but um, they still didn't really care for them. So Mm. Dexter, thinking it was an opportunity to earn respect, he invested his money and his wife's money in the uh, now discontinued dollars. He bought boatloads of these bills for pennies. Um, And he did it because he wanted people to like him. It was a goodwill gesture. He wanted, you know, that was his, his goal. The U.S. Constitution was ratified toward the end of the 18th century, and it was decided that the bills could be traded for treasury bills at 1% of their face value. So he became immensely wealthy because of this, some would say, eccentric act of, of charity. Later in life, a neighbor tried to bankrupt him by giving him the idea to sell bed warming pans in the West Indies. Um, He took the advice and he journeyed to the West Indies with 42,000 warming pans. Um, There, he realized that the territory was hot all the time and there was really no demand for bed warming pans. So he rebranded them as ladles and sold them to sugar and molasses plantation owners. Uh, The demand was far greater than what he had. And again, he came back with... uh, more money than he could ever use. That's amazing. Why was his neighbor such a shitbag? I don't know. That sounds... People were shitbags back in in the colonial days. Oh, yeah. It's good that that stopped. Yeah. Sure. Hasn't hasn't happened in hours. Anyway, um, he's also a self-published author. His memoir, A Pickle for the Knowing Ones, had no punctuation and was full of errors. Oh, no. It was a complete mess. Nope. That's... He didn't sell the copies of the book, but rather gave them away. The demand was so high that a second edition was printed and sold out and made him lots of money. Why? I I don't know. People just, I guess, got a kick out of this guy. (laughs) I mean, I'm interested in his memoir, but not if there's no punctuation. (laughs) That's just hard. And finally, I'm going to tell you about uh, what I found out about Greek philosopher Diogenes. Wasn't much known about his early life. There's a lot of speculation about it. But what we do know for sure is that the ancient thinker was one of history's weirdest people. Diogenes was born in 1412 BC in a very remote Greek colony. When he was young, he worked with his father minting currency for the colony. Um, That is until they were both exiled for 
adulterating the gold and silver content of the coins. That was a popular habit. Shaving off the ridges, if you will. Yep. So young Diogenes made his way to Corinth, mainland Greece. And almost as soon as he arrived, he seemed to have, I don't know, he had something happened to him. Some say he snapped. He had no job, so he adapted to the life of a homeless beggar. He voluntarily threw away what possessions he had. All he had was some rags to hide his nakedness and a wooden bowl for food and drink. But he was fascinated with philosophy. So Diogenes often sat in on Plato's classes. However, he wasn't the model student. He would go in and he would eat as loudly as he could the whole time to disrupt the, the lessons. It's like a performance artist, I guess. I don't know. He'd come in in his rags, barely clothed, <laughs> and eat his food as loud as he can in Plato's class. <sighs> he argued loudly with Plato about philosophy and would, uh, at times, um, masturbate in public. Oh. Yeah. Yep. One time he got into a fight with uh, Plato and he uh, defecated on Plato's stool. Stool stool? No, the stool that he sat on to lecture. I'm assuming he didn't just go and poop on Plato's poop. Right. But after he pooped on it, it was a stool stool. It was stool to the second power. It was a stool boom. From the parlor to the pool room. Stool boom. It probably didn't help Diogenes' case that he frequently ate anything that he found on the ground. Oh, no. He did share the scraps with dogs that followed him everywhere. That's nice. And, of course, they would follow him into Plato's classes, and I think that's probably why he did it. He had this thing where he just wanted to piss off Plato all the time. I'm not really sure why. Okay. <laughs> but be- Was it a personal-like thing, I, or was he into just angering anyone? I think so. Yeah, he, uh, he was known for founding the um, cynic movement. Okay. But he did get a reputation as one of the wisest philosophers in Greece, which is weird because he lived like he did. Mm-hmm. He actually slept in a barrel on the street. But he did this voluntarily. Yes. Like he, okay. Yep. Yep. So I have a relative who who lived hobo style voluntarily for probably like two or three years. And it was one of those things where he would just work, like do day labor as he mm-hmm. needed to right. for food and, mm-hmm. and shelter as he needed it. And it was just... A, and kind of an exercise in freedom and trying things and going places. And it was really interesting. I thought it was really brave. That's um, kind of It's cool. not something I would be able to do because I need to know, like, I need to have a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just thought that was really interesting. And the, some people just, that's just their bag. Was his destination Bangor, Maine? No, he was looking to get out of Bangor, he Maine. To get out of Bangor, okay. <laughs> Most of the stories about Diogenes, uh, him living in a uh, in a barrel or a big ceramic jar, are located in Athens. There are some accounts of his, his living in a jar in Corinth. Um, a report that Philip II of Macedon was marching on the town and had thrown all of Corinth into a into a hustle and bustle. Um, one of his uh, soldiers was furbishing the arms, another was wheeling stones, a third patching a wall, a fourth was strengthening a battlement. Everyone was busy. Oh, there was a hubbub. There was a hubbub. Diogenes, having nothing to do because nobody you know would give him a job, gathered up his philosopher's cloak and began rolling his barrel up and down the street. Uh, When they asked what he was doing, he said, I do not want to be thought of the only idler in such a busy multitude. I am rolling my barrel to be like the rest. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. He was... He was staying busy for busy's sake. He was teaching lessons. There are stories of his quick wit, his penetrating insight that left others, especially Plato, um, looking kind of silly. Uh, It's said that when Alexander the Great visited him while he was sunning himself naked on top of his barrel, I mean, he was so well thought of that Alexander the Great sought him out. And when he got there, Diogenes was just naked on a barrel. Mm. Um, he walked up to Diogenes, and this is the most powerful man in the world at the time, um, Alexander the Great. And he walked up to the philosopher and he said, is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes said, well, you can get out of my light. <laughs> <laughs> Alexander then declared, if I were not Alexander, I should wish to be Diogenes. Diogenes said, if I were not Diogenes, I would still wish to be Diogenes. <laughs> Another account of the conversation, uh, Alexander found the philosopher looking attentively at, a, intent, attentively at a pile of human bones. Diogenes explained, I am searching for the bones of your father, but cannot distinguish them from those of a slave. Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. I mean, now we could probably. Um, yeah, well, well <laughs> DNA sequencing, sure. Well, not just that, but the effects of uh, life easily lived on bones Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyway that's so i mentioned you know the whole public masturbation thing sure Uh, he did that a lot oh no Uh he would go to the marketplace oftentimes that's where people get their food yeah yeah so the town elders approached him about the indecency of masturbating in public and he said if only it were as easy to banish hunger by rubbing my belly if only it were as easy to banish hunger by rubbing my belly. See, he could banish his sexual urges by rubbing his nethers. So he was he was making a, a statement about uh, feeding the hungry. Nope. No, that's not. Nope. <laughs> nope. I would have thrown a cantaloupe at him. <laughs> there are conflicting accounts of his death. His contemporaries allege that he held his breath until he expired. <laughs> <laughs> although other accounts of his death say that he became ill from eating raw octopus or maybe he suffered from an infected dog bite well i mean if he was just eating rando stuff he found on the ground Mm -hmm. it could have been any number of things absolutely could have been when he was asked how he wished to be buried he left instructions to be thrown outside the city wall so wild animals could feast on his body. Um, when asked if he minded this, he said, no, not at all, as long as you provide me with a stick to chase the creatures away. When asked how he could use the stick, since he would be lacking awareness, he replied, if I lack awareness, then why should I care what happens to me when I'm dead? Even to the end, he made fun of people's excessive concern with what they called proper treatment of the dead. Uh, The Corinthians ended up erecting a a, a pillar in his honor. Wow. And on top of it, there is a a dog because of all the dogs that would uh, follow him around. Little dog friend. Little dog friend. So there you go. Dodge and he's kind of a weird dude. I like that. So there you go. A couple of uh, interesting eccentric people from history. Um, I love people who are eccentric. Yeah. My mom was very eccentric. Yeah. And and she appreciated people who were. Right. We were just talking the other night about how my dad and your mom would have gotten along really well. Oh, yeah. 
because my dad was a big weird person and and he had a big weird personality Mm -hmm. and uh your mom liked weirdos yep yep. she collected them that was her hobby (laughs) anyway freaks stay safe we love you thanks for hanging out with us and another episode will drop uh at its regular time uh which would be monday i guess right yeah monday yeah monday (laughs) (laughs) until then Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freaks. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is, two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The Big Picture Questions and the Most Interesting Research in Science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.